Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend is the third Sunday after Pentecost. For our readings in the church, we will be looking at Jeremiah chapter 20, verses 7 through 13 for our Old Testament text. For the epistle, it's Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 23. And the gospel text is actually a little divided up. It's it's an extension of last week's reading. So we'll have Matthew chapter 10, verse 5a, and then verses 21 to 33. So we begin with our Old Testament reading. And the context of this one is... This is the book of Jeremiah, again, chapter 20, verses 7 through 13. Jeremiah is a servant of the Lord. He's been called by God uh, since a very young age to be a prophet. That is, someone who will speak God's word to his people, warning them of the dangers of their sin, but also speaking, um, if they would repent, what that would bring about for them as well. So the the prophet's goal there, uh, the work of a prophet, pretty Pretty simple, really, when you when you break it down like that. Jeremiah is the prophet of God to the nation of Judah, so the southern of God's two kingdoms. And it's after the northern kingdom of Israel has already fallen. So Israel has been defeated in 722 BC and taken off into their exile, which is a permanent one. That happened in, again, 722 B.C. at the hands of the Assyrians. Judah will fall. Jerusalem will fall in 587 B.C. at the hands of the Babylonians. And the people of God from the southern kingdom are carried off into exile by the, by the Babylonian king and by his army. Jeremiah is the prophet to Judah in the time that leads up to that. And then also, for an extent, during that exile. That's what the whole book of Lamentations is. Um, Don't get that one in the the lectionary reading very much. Lamentations is what the name suggests. It's a lament. Jeremiah the prophet is lamenting the fall of God's people. It's five chapters long, and it only shows up in the lectionary readings one time. And it's like the one little ray of gospel, the one little bit of good news, which Jeremiah puts right in the middle, literally right in the middle. I mean, the the book is very poetically written, uh, the chapters being the same length, uh, mostly. And so chapters one, two, four, and five are all the lamenting. Even chapter three at the beginning and the end is the lamenting. But right there in the midst of chapter three, you've got the, the prophecy of restoration for God's people. And that's the only piece of the book of Lamentations that makes it into our our lectionary readings. It's quite difficult, (laughs) but that is what it is. So this is, this is Jeremiah, a little bit about him. Now a little bit about chapter 20 and the time leading up to our text. There's a false prophet named Pashur who has been speaking to God's people of Judah and they have been believing him instead of Jeremiah. And so you get to the point where Pashur actually beats Jeremiah and puts him in the stocks. You know, you we get the picture of the stocks from from watching TV or movies, but the, the thing with the the three holes in it, and you, you put a prisoner in the 
in there with his hands through the two outer holes and his head through the middle holes. He's just kind of bending there with his face to the ground. That's the picture we have of the stocks. Maybe that's exactly what it was. Maybe it looked slightly different. Hard to say. This was 2,500, 2,600 years ago, what that might have looked like. We don't have pictures left over from that era. So as he gets out of the stocks the next morning, Jeremiah speaks words of condemnation over Pashur, including a name change, which is really interesting. Um, the, the number of times that God changes people's names in the Bible is actually quite, quite few. We falsely attribute some of them, like Paul in the New Testament, who had been Saul. Um, that's not a, a, a name change that we know of, at least, that was given by God. Um, but Pashur's is. He goes from being Pashur to Magor Misaviv, uh, which means terror on every side. Um, and it's quite a profound name change, and it's not a gospel one. You think of Abram's name change, and it reminds him of what God has done for him. Pashur's is law. It's condemnation upon him for what he has done, his wickedness. So as we look to the text then, this is Jeremiah. This is what he says next after he's spoken that condemnation upon Pashur. We'll just read a couple verses at a time and then unpack them together. O Yahweh, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You are stronger than I and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I, cry, I speak, I cry out. I shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. So this word deceived in the, the first verse, in verse 7, the Hebrew word can mean to deceive. It can mean to, to fool someone, to trick them. It can mean to seduce them. Um, what Jeremiah is getting at here is that basically the Lord has thrust this role upon him. It is the Lord who has made Jeremiah become a prophet. Um, if Jeremiah could have his own way, this is not what he would choose for himself. That's the kind of, um, really the mourning of a life of a prophet. Mourning as in weeping over, not sunrise. Um, this is what's occurring here in the first verse. He can almost imagine kicking and screaming, being dragged into this uh, against his will. But that's the reflection Jeremiah is giving. God gets Jeremiah to do it, and that's going to be verse 9 as well when we get down to that verse. I've become a laughing stock, and that's quite literally um, at this point. Uh, interesting how the English word plays out for us. He was put in the stocks. And as he was in the stocks, he was certainly laughed at uh, by Pashur and likely others as well. So he has literally become a laughing stock among the people. They mock him. But we know, as God's people today, because of the ministry of Jesus Christ, that this is actually the lot of anyone who speaks his truth in this world. This is John chapter 15, verse 9. And really, actually, that whole section, John 15, 16, 17, Jesus says the same thing in several different places in several different kind of ways. This idea that the world will hate you because it hated him. The world hated Jesus, and you follow Jesus. What do you think the world's going to think of you? 
And as the American culture shifts more and more further and further away from, from the truth and from the church, this is becoming all the more apparent. The day may literally come where we are, well, maybe not stocks. I don't know. We haven't used stocks as a culture for a hundred years or so. Maybe they'll bring that back for us. I don't know. Uh, prison? Likely. I have a hard time imagining that my own children, if they continue in the faith and speak the truth, won't see jail time for it. Or be harmed physically because of it. Culture changes. And as we move into a technological age, culture is changing fast. It's like one of those old curves from math class where it starts out just a gradual movement, but as it keeps going, it gets the movement gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, technology has made cultural change happen like that as we think of social media and, and other forms of media and communication as well. Verse 8, violence and destruction. That's what he, he has been given by God to speak because that's what's coming. If the people of Judah don't repent, that's what they're going to find. And so it's gloom and doom upon a sinful people. And the literal result, then 8b, the literal result is Jeremiah speaks. This is the response he gets. The word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. Because when he speaks the word of the Lord, he is reproached. And the people, again, mock him. They beat him for it. Verses 9 and 10. If I say I will not, if, if, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I heard many whispering, terror is on every side. Denounce him, let us denounce him. Say all my close friends, watching for my fall. Perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge on him. So Jeremiah speaks the word of the Lord, and it brings him suffering at the hands of sinful people who refuse to hear God's word. But if he tries to stop, he can't. His soul burns within him. The word of the Lord that he has been given to speak burns within him, and he can't keep it in. Pray that the word of the Lord is like this in yourself. This is how the good news should be on our lips. Both law and gospel. Gospel is the good news. Um, but, but there's a place for law and gospel as we, we share that good news with others. Would that it were that we loved our neighbor so much that we put away the things of this world and we burned inside to tell our neighbor about Jesus because we cared for them that much.
And because of what Jesus has done for them is that great and the suffering that they will endure forever because of their foolish choice to reject a king is also so terrible. These things ought to move a Christian. And it is concerning that they don't. By and large, we'd rather just stay in our little corner of of life and, and stay there and be entertained in our own little bubble. That's the American worldview, at least. And we've, we've bought it hook, line, and sinker. Burning fire might bring you to think of Pentecost or Jesus' promise of a baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Holy Spirit will not allow Jeremiah to remain silent. He has been given work to do by the Lord. In verse 10, Jeremiah believes that there is evil on every side of him looking to cause him harm. And that terror on every side, line in verse 10 there, is exactly what God had just renamed the false prophet Pashur, Magor Misaviv. So the connection there in the text. Then we get what the people would say, denounce him, let us denounce him. The world rejects him because of his message. They hadn't rejected him before, right? Jeremiah has friends. If they had rejected him previously, they wouldn't have been his friends. But even the people that he thought were close to him, when he started speaking the truth of the Lord, they turned on him. Jesus speaks this way in the Gospels. I do not think that I have come to bring peace, but a sword. We're going to have the text coming up. In our Gospel reading in, in Matthew chapter 10, this is your connection. This is why these texts are paired together. Brother will deliver brother over to death, father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Over the Gospel. So we'll get to that in a little bit. Verse 10, a little bit more, just one last thought here. They are trying to take Jeremiah's life. That's the quote that he speaks for them at the end of the verse. The text turns here. So it's been negative up to this point, but it takes a turn into the positive in verses 11 through 13. We'll do 11 and 12, and then we'll finish up with 13 in a little bit. But Yahweh is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed, for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Yahweh of hosts who tests the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you have I committed my cause. Dread involves fear. A dreaded warrior is one who instills fear into his opponent before the battle even begins. Think back of a very familiar Bible account, that of David and Goliath. Goliath had for 40 days taunted Israel, and the Israelites were all afraid. Not a single one of them would go out into the battle against Goliath. A dread warrior. Here, Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, is the dread warrior 
who instills fear into his enemies at his very presence, the very mention of his name. Jeremiah speaks of salvation, that Yahweh will fight for him, that because of Yahweh he will not be put to death, because of Yahweh the persecutors will stumble, they will not overcome me. That's a salvific reference. It's not paradise, but it is that God is fighting for him. It is that God is going to rescue him from the situation that he finds himself in at the moment. And ultimately, it has that better promise of paradise. As we think of God being our, our dread warrior against sin, death, and the devil. The famous Lutheran hymn, probably the most famous Lutheran hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One little word will fell him in regards to the devil. That little word being Jesus, just at the name of Jesus, the devil would be terrified and flee. Eternal dishonor. That's a strong phrase. Eternal means it never ends. Eternal also means it never begins, but unending dishonor because they have rejected God. And it will never be forgotten. That stands in contrast to what Jeremiah is going to speak about 11 chapters later. Jeremiah 31 is the new covenant that God will make with his people. That in that day he will forgive their sins. He will remember their sins no more. This stands opposed to that because these are not his people. These have rejected him and want nothing to do with him. And so they, their sins, will never be forgotten. Verse 12, Yahweh tests the righteous. That's what Jeremiah is, is thinking of this situation, that the Lord is putting him to the test, testing his faithfulness, testing his endurance, his resolve to stand strong in the faith over and against an enemy that would break him down. And this is something many Christians have had to endure throughout the centuries. Many Christians even today are enduring this as they are beaten and eventually martyred, killed because of their Christian faith. They are enduring. Have we seen that one as well later on this morning? Hmm. There's some New Testament parallels to that. I was thinking they might have been in our text for, for our Bible study together, but maybe I'm just missing it. We'll get there if so. But otherwise, the idea that the one who endures, who remains faithful to the end, will be saved is a New Testament teaching. So, a good prayer for the Christian, for their brothers and sisters who are suffering elsewhere in the world, is not that the suffering would be removed. That's the beginning of Romans 5, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance, character and character, hope, 
um, and hope will not put us to shame. But our prayer should be for our brothers and sisters who are suffering that they might endure, that God would strengthen them, that they can stand the time and the test. Jeremiah prays for vengeance upon his enemies. This is a fine thing to do, as we just mentioned what to pray for our brothers and sisters who are suffering. It is okay to pray for vengeance upon your enemies. There are, we call them imprecatory psalms that actually have this very nature to them. 69, 109 are a couple of examples. There are others as well. The imprecatory psalms don't really end up getting used in worship. These connect then to Romans chapter 12, verse 19, where we learn that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. It is not the Christian's place to seek revenge. It was not Jeremiah's place to fight back. It was his place to speak God's word. This is a struggle that we have in our culture today. We want to fight back. We want to win the courts. We want to win the government. We want to win over um, liberal, religious liberty cases and, and things like that. And we do so at the expense of actually speaking the word we've been given to speak. We make the argument that we're fighting so that we can speak it again in the future, but we're not even speaking it in the present. Something to consider and something to chew on. Um, we, we are called to speak the good news of Jesus. The world is going to hate it. That was promised to us. The world will hate it. They will hate us because they hated Christ. They hated Jeremiah because he had committed his cause to Yahweh. That word vengeance is actually much more common in the Old Testament than it is in the New, at least in the English Standard Version, the ESV text that, that we use in our church body. The word vengeance appears 41 times in the Old Testament compared to just four in the New. All right, verse 13, wrapping up Jeremiah for the day. Sing to Yahweh, praise Yahweh, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of evildoers. Jeremiah concludes our section that we have, at least of the text, with this rejoicing. Rejoicing in God's good gifts, even though it doesn't look like it in the there and the now, that he is freshly beaten and everybody despises him. He's still rejoicing. Good connection, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 17, no, 16 through 18. I should have looked that up. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. The last of those three verses is hard to remember. It's longer. But rejoice always, pray without ceasing, five words. If you can memorize those five words, you've just memorized two Bible verses. It was always one of the things that I I would get a groan out of my confirmation class when I assigned them that memory work. 
Oh, three verses, Pastor? But then I taught him that those two verses are just five words long, and suddenly it wasn't so bad. So it, those are really wonderful encouragement to remember and keep in mind. Rejoice always, always, in every circumstance, we are to give thanks. And we are to not cease praying. Trust in the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. He will provide. He will care for you. It may not look like, it probably won't look like what you want it to. But he cares for you. And ultimately, that's what he has done here at the end of this verse, at the end of our text. Delivering the life of the needy. Delivering the life of Jeremiah from Pashur. Delivering your life and my life from sin, death, and the devil. The Lord has overcome. He has overcome them for us. He is victorious, and because he is victorious, because he lives, you live. So as we look then to our epistle text, again, we're looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 23. Romans is Paul's letter to the church in Rome, uh, probably written in the late 40s or into the 50s, so within 10, 15, 20 years of the time of Jesus Christ here and his life and ministry, death and resurrection. Um, the overall theme of the letter has been about righteousness. What is righteousness? What is God's righteousness? Very influential letter in the theology of Martin Luther and the Reformation. What made him ultimately reject the Catholic idea and understanding of Scripture that we somehow have to be, we have to reach perfection. Uh, that the, the righteousness of God is is demanded from us in that light, rather than the righteousness of God is actually what is given to us. So when God looks to righteousness in, in people, what he sees is his own righteousness earned for us by Jesus. So Romans became really a, one of the crucial texts of Scripture for the Reformation 500 years ago. Our Romans 6 passage today we begin with the first paragraph, verses 12 to 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. The very previous verse to this, in, in verse 11, Paul had just told people to consider themselves, therefore, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we're going to continue that theme here. And the question we're invited to in verse 12 is, who reigns? Who reigns over heaven and earth? Who reigns over you? And the answer is not sin. The answer is God. The answer is Jesus. So let not sin therefore reign. Don't give it that place of power within you, that position of authority, that you would obey its passions. And note, note that preposition. Not preposition, that pronoun. Possessive pronoun. Its passions. Sin's passions, not yours. They were once yours, we'll come to that, but they're not any longer. 
Sin does not reign over you. Sin does not dominate you. Jesus does. So, the passions of sin are not yours any longer. Do not give them the reign over your heart and over your mind and over your time and over your what you do. We get the contrast with verse 13. Essentially, what should we be using our body to do? Do I use my arm and my fist, my hand to make a fist and strike my neighbor? Or do I use my arm and my hand to help my neighbor in whatever way it may be fixing their fence carrying in some groceries giving them a hug in a time of, of loneliness Verse 14, sin does not have dominion over you. Dominion is to rule. A king has dominion. For a while, the devil had dominion. But now he has none. It is Jesus who has dominion over you. Do not let sin take it back. Do not give yourselves to sin. You are not under law, but under grace. I mean, think about that for a moment. When we were under the law, when in order to be saved, you had to keep the law perfectly, how did we do? We failed. We failed wretchedly, miserably, to keep the commands that God had given to us. We could not survive under the law. Thanks be to God, we are under grace. We are under his gifts, his promises, his love, his forgiveness, his word, his sacraments, his promise of life that never ends. Now, don't misunderstand the phrase, not under law. That's what the next paragraph is about, starting at 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves as, to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. So, as I mentioned, the connection here between the paragraphs what does it mean that we're not under the law? It means it's not the law that saves us, but grace. It is the grace of God that we are saved. 
but that doesn't mean what we are without law. That's verse 15. By no means, we're not lawless. There's a lot of slavery talk in the New Testament. And it makes Americans uncomfortable, especially in, in tumultuous times within a culture. Slavery has been a common institution throughout the history of this world. That's common enough that as Paul writes this letter, I mean, verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms. He's using pictures, illustrations, metaphors, connections in the world that we can understand as we hear them. A lot of English translations don't even bother to use the word slave anymore. Um, they'll replace it with servant, which sounds less harsh. The, the word in Greek, doulos, has that flexibility to translate either way. But it's not necessary. I mean, let Paul say here what he was what he was getting at. Let it let it have the full thrust. Let it sound harsh when it needs to sound harsh. And let the word of God speak. And if the word of God upsets you, it's not the word of God that needs to change. If there's something in God's word I don't like, it needs to change me. Not the other way around. That, that very simple idea is how liberal Christian churches, progressive Christianity, has been born today. And over the last two generations now, we have seen those churches, many of them, walk away from the gospel of Jesus Christ entirely to a point where they now teach a universal salvation. That it doesn't matter if you you follow Jesus as a Christian. Uh, if, you're, if you're spiritual, if you're walking up the mountain, you can get to God. Seminary professors who deny that the resurrection happened. I'm not making this up. You can look it up. saying statements like it doesn't it doesn't matter if the resurrection was a real historical event what matters is that you you believe it in your heart the disciple we can't know if it really happened but the disciples believe that it did and that's all that matters wrong i mean if jesus is not risen from the dead we're beyond doomed we're done our goose is cooked How do we get to that lawlessness idea here? But that is, lawlessness is at the root of that issue. Anyway, let's get back on track. We are slaves of one or the other. 
you can either be a slave of sin, which leads to death, or of God, which leads to righteousness, obedience, that is listening to hearing his word. Verse 17. Thanks be to God. Even though we were once slaves of sin, we aren't any longer. We are now slaves of God. Obedient from the heart to the standard of teachings to which you were committed. That sounds like confirmation. And if you want to talk about traditions in the church today, these people were brought into the Christian faith by a standard of teaching. They committed themselves to that standard of teaching. When we confirm a child, that child is saying that they have committed themselves even to the point of death to Jesus and to what they have been taught about him. Very much a confirmation-like statement. We confess doctrines, teachings. That's what doctrine means, teaching. We actually believe things. And they're not just random made up things. We believe what God has given us to believe. Verse 18. You will have a master. But who? I mean, as a Christian, you can ask yourself that question. Would I rather be a slave to sin or a slave to God? The answer for me is quite clear and easy. That doesn't mean I do it. doesn't mean I live that way very well. But I would much rather be a slave to God. You got the psalm, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. Better is one day than your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than, than the greatest here. Second part of 19 then. Lawlessness leads to more lawlessness. You cannot satiate the desires of the sinful flesh. Have you ever tried? Have you ever been so caught up in sin in the moment that you, you honestly believe that if you, you just did it this time, you would never have to do it again? That somehow you could satisfy the desires of your sinful heart? I've been there. It doesn't work. Sin just grows like an uncontrollable beast within us. If you feed it, it grows and it'll just keep growing. There's got to be a horror movie reference in there somewhere. Gremlins, maybe? Anyway, that's where we were 
as slaves to impurity, but now we are called to present ourselves, our members, that is our our bodies and all of our parts, you know, our arms, our hands, our, our legs, our feet, our eyes, our mouths, our tongue. We present them to righteousness, to the things of God, which lead us to sanctification. Connects back to Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, to those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I think that will eventually be satiated. You know, it's good to feed. It's good for the Christian to be fed with God's word and with his sacraments. And that'll always be true. We will always want to hear God's word, even in paradise. And while the sacraments won't be needed for forgiveness at that point anymore, we will still have the, the marriage feast of the Lamb and his kingdom, the celebration that never ends. So we will we will continue to be fed. The, the righteous, those who hunger for righteousness, will continue to be fed by the Lord for forever. Hmm. All right, last paragraph of the, the Romans text today. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So with verse 20, not a good place to be. It is not a good statement that we were free in regard to righteousness. Think of righteousness here as the things of God. We were free from the things of God. That's not where we want to be. So verse 20 is is all bad. Slaves of sin, rebels against the Lord, basically, is the way you could, could consider that and think about that text. Verse 21, fruit, and well, really 21 and 22, this word fruit is a reference to the reward. You think of planting a crop and then harvesting a crop. Or you plant the tree and the tree grows fruit. It bears good fruit for you or bad fruit. Um, in verse 21 here, this, this is bad fruit. What fruit were you getting from the things that now shame you? We look back on our past and we are ashamed of our sins. We think of the, the things that we've done or said or thought, and they embarrass us. Even to, even to think about them, even to recall them is an embarrassment and shame upon us, let alone to speak about them. What fruit did you have from doing those things? What reward did you get from doing those things? And even if you can say that there actually was a, a reward for it, that reward leads only to death. Maybe you cheated or lied to get ahead of the office in your career. Well, congratulations, your fruit is more pay, a higher paycheck, a better job, whatever it may be. None of that money goes with you. It just becomes a cycle that leads to death. Instead, but now, 
Now that you're set free from sin, you're slaves of God. Your fruit leads to sanctification and to its end, eternal life. Sanctification is being made holy. So the fruits of, of your faith are making you holy, bringing you to that life that you get to spend with God in paradise forever. But it's worth noting that fruits don't have to be positive. The fruits of your faith, of doing righteous things with your members, may not be good things, at least in the eyes of this world. Think of Jeremiah in our Old Testament reading. The fruit of his labor was being put in the stocks and mocked and having his friends turn against him. Suffering. The New Testament promises the Christian that they will suffer. It's a promise. Read 2 Timothy 3.12. It is promised to you that you will suffer because you follow Christ. But that leads to sanctification. Because our suffering, this is First Peter's purpose and point, is our suffering points us to the suffering of Christ. It is good that our, our earthly life actually points us to Jesus. When your earthly life is filled with comfort and wonderful things, it doesn't point you to Jesus. We run the risk of getting comfortable and thinking we've done this on our own and, and be wallowing, wallowing in our pride and forgetting about our Savior. But when we suffer, when we suffer, we are to look to Christ. We are to call out to Christ that he would rescue us, that he would save us as Jeremiah did in the Old Testament text. And as Jesus has ultimately done, rescuing us from sin, death, and the devil. Verse 23 is, is a, a very strong verse, and it's an easy verse to memorize. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul has been setting these two things as opposites over and against one another this whole text, and that is true. Sin leads to death, but the free gift, so not earned, not worked for, not our own righteousness, the free gift is given to us. Life is given to us in Jesus. As we reach our gospel text for the weekend, it's from Matthew chapter 10, verse 5a, and then 21 to 33. 5a introduces that Jesus is speaking. So let's put this back into its context before we actually read the text, because really the text has been ripped out of its context for the weekend's reading, which is almost impossible not to do if you're not going to read the whole Bible anyway. Well, not the whole Bible, but the whole letter of, at, at a time anyway. So here we go. The last weekend in church, we had chapter 9, verse 35, through chapter 10, verse 8. Some of our congregations actually kept that reading going all the way to 20. 9 through 20 was an optional additional text. At our congregation, we actually read that. Um, but many congregations probably just stopped at verse 8. This is 
Well, it's a follow-up, so let's, let's backstep a little bit even further. Jesus' authority has been on display in the last five chapters. Chapters 5 through 7 were the authority of Jesus to speak. As people heard him teach on the, at the Sermon on the Mount, and they marveled when he finished saying that they had never, never before had they been taught by someone with such authority, who spoke with authority from within himself rather than authority from another. And then chapters 8 and 9 were about the authority of Jesus' deeds, as we see a series of nine miracles in those two chapters that Jesus performs because he has authority over his creation. Now we moved into the text last weekend where we see the, really this is considered to be the missionary discourse as Jesus sends his disciples out. And it's a lengthier section. I mean, it goes through chapter 10, verse 42. So we don't even get that far this weekend. Looking ahead of the calendar, next weekend we get that. We get the last part of this, so the verse is 34 to 42. So we'll get to that next week. But for now, we, we, we're where we are, Jesus is going to take his authority and give it to his disciples and then send them out into the culture to share the good news of the kingdom. It is of note that Matthew does not actually record their return. Luke, for example, has Jesus send the 72 out. He records that event, that moment. And then in Luke's gospel, we see them return. And they're rejoicing when they return because even the demons were listening to them. And Jesus kind of, Jesus rebuked them softly for that. Um, Matthew does not have them return. Actually, in Matthew's context, as you read the letter, it's almost like they never leave. Because the next time you hear about the disciples, they're just right there with Jesus. And this fits with the theme that Matthew has been working with, and that is truly this missionary theme, that Jesus came with a mission and he entrusted that mission to his disciples to bring about the kingdom of God and to, to welcome people into that kingdom of God. And so that is what we see with the sending out of the twelve here in chapter 10, it's what we see with the sending out of all people in chapter 28 as we talk about the Great Commission. We just had that text. No, we had a portion of that, that chapter a few weeks back, right after Easter. I'm looking at the lectionary calendar here. I don't think we actually get the Great Commission of Matthew 28 as one of our gospel texts here in the year of, well, in year A. By the end of year A, we only get back to Matthew 25. So we don't actually... No, we do. It was Trinity Sunday. Just a few weeks ago. I have my apologies. So we get that a little out of order. We actually have Jesus send out the whole church. And then double back here to chapter 10 to see him send out just the 12. But in reality, he did it the other way around. All right, so we dive into the text, and 5a is just the introduction of who's speaking. So Jesus sent, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them. So we skip over the instruction that is really much more limited in focus, 
that first chunk of text, which we, again, many churches were reading last weekend, is what Jesus spoke that really would only apply to the 12. But as you get into this next section, these words have a much more broad application. Yes, they applied to the 12, but they also apply to the church ever since. So let's do it a paragraph at a time again. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Where Christianity is illegal, where following Christ gets you persecuted, this happens all the time. Families turn on each other. If you think of a Middle Eastern country that's Muslim-dominated, for example, if one of their children comes to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the punishment for that, it varies from, from one location to another. In some locations, it's disownership. You are kicked out of the family. You become homeless and you're on your own. That's the nice outcome. In some places, this is punishable by death. And families turn each other in. This happens on a regular basis. It might be hard for us to imagine as we sit in our our comfortable homes. But this could happen to us as well. Again, as we mentioned earlier in the show, our culture is changing rapidly. This could be coming our way. Verse 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. This is a harsh truth. It's a reality. This is the way things are. The world hated Jesus the world will hate you for following Jesus. Jesus has given you work to do. If you're actually doing that work, you're going to be upsetting people. You have been given the task of calling them to repentance. That is the sermon we hear from John the Baptist in chapter 3. It's the sermon we hear from Jesus in chapter 4. The very first words that either of them preach in this gospel account are repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. These are the words Jesus gives to the disciples, his disciples to speak. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Without repentance, there is no faith, but repentance requires humility. It requires admitting that we're wrong, confessing our sins, admitting that the things that we love and enjoy and really have built our lives around are false gods. And no man is strong enough to do that himself. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings about repentance. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings about faith. So as we send out laborers into the harvest, 
It's part of the text that we've had before. Part of our prayer ought to be that the Holy Spirit continues to go out among, among that harvest field. That the Holy Spirit create faith, that the Holy Spirit work through God's word and work through us. I mean, that's, that's the previous verse that we just missed, verse 20, that the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. Ah, we did have it. The text that we were looking for earlier, the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is a reference to faith enduring. We endure whatever this evil world may throw at us. Maybe this evil world throws at you great wealth. And so your temptations then are very different than the person like Jeremiah, where the evil world threw at him much suffering and grief, physical beatings. Paul is that way as well in our Romans text. I don't remember off the top of my head what happened to Matthew other than I don't remember his specific means of being martyred, how he was killed for his faith, but that's another example. Don't think that the devil doesn't work through comfort. Takes our eyes off of Christ, builds up our pride. We've done this for ourselves. I don't need God to provide for me. I don't need God to provide for my family. I put the house over, over the, well, I put the roof over their heads. I put the food on the table. That's pride. That's not faith. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Cling to Jesus. That's the call of the gospel. Trust in his promises. He is faithful. Persecution is going to happen. And when it does, Jesus' command to his disciples is to flee to the next place. When you're persecuted in one location, go to the next. This is actually how the early church got seated. All the Christians right after Pentecost are welled up together in Jerusalem. They're all hiding in Jerusalem. At that point, after Pentecost, you've got over 3,000 Christians gathered in Jerusalem together, and then they get scattered. Persecution hits Jerusalem hard, and they flee, and they take the gospel with them as they go up north, or as they go south, or as they go southwest into Egypt. Wherever they fled, they took the gospel with them. So, the more the church is persecuted, the more the church flourishes. This is a historical reality throughout the history of the church. When the church grows comfortable, the church shrinks. But when the church suffers, the church grows. That may not be numerical growth, but it is certainly growth in faith. The next line causes confusion, and it's one of the hardest lines in the entire gospel account to translate not necessarily translate. Interpret is probably the better way to say that. What does Matthew mean? What did Jesus mean when he said, before the Son of Man comes? 
the commentaries that I have, both the study Bible actually and Dr. Gibbs's commentary on the, the Gospel of Matthew, suggest here that this is not the second coming of Christ that we might think of, uh, but based on chapter 23, is really to be viewed as the reference of the destruction of Jerusalem, which happens by Rome in, in 70 AD, so 30, 40 years from this time. The disciples will not have made it everywhere. They will not have reached every Israelite. They will not have reached all of God's people of the Old Testament to share the gospel with them. So they need to be diligent. They need to go now and do this now um, because the time is short before they will run out of time. That does apply for us. The time is short. We don't know when the second coming is. Maybe it does happen quickly. Maybe Christ comes back today or tomorrow or next week. In which case, how should you view your neighbor? How should you view the task Jesus has given you of sharing the good news with your neighbor? If you truly love them, you don't want them in hell. If you don't care if your neighbor is in heaven or hell come the last day, you don't love them. That's just a simple reality. You don't actually care what happens to them in the, in the, the grand scheme of things. That's not love. Our love for our neighbor, the desire to see them be in paradise with us someday. Even if it's a person we despise now, even our enemies, right? Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, Matthew 5. That motivates us. It gives us the sense of urgency to share the gospel and to do it often as best we can. Because even if Christ doesn't come back, for another 2,000 years. I hope he doesn't wait that long. Um, even if he waits that much longer, though, your neighbor doesn't have that long, and you don't know how long your neighbor has. People die every day. Accidents happen every day. Tragic losses happen every day. And every death is a tragic loss. We were not made to die. It is the result of our sin. We need a Savior. Verse 25, uh, 24 and 25, the next paragraph. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Verse 24 and really the next sentence, too, are both obvious statements, right? The master is above his servant. The teacher is above his disciple. Just authority. You might even say importance. You don't have to, but you probably could, culturally speaking. But the point Jesus is making with this rhetorical device here, if they are willing to go so far against the master, if they're willing to say so much against Jesus himself, what are they going to do to you? How much more will they do to you? Because you're not the master. You're just a student. You're just a disciple. And they do call him this. Matthew chapter 12, 24. The Pharisees say exactly this about him. And even in chapter 
9, they had accused him of being in league with the devil. They just didn't use this name specifically in chapter 9. But the next paragraph, the very the way it starts is is intriguing. So have no fear of them. Yes, you're going to be hated. Yes, they're going to treat you worse than they treat me. So have no fear. And it's almost nonsense uh, the way Jesus says it. But he's God, so he can say it how he pleases. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will be not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Have no fear of them. But what should we fear? One thing. Verse 28 is is major in the life of the Christian, and it's one that we need to focus on more uh, because we have so much fear in our in our hearts and in our minds. Do not fear those things that can only kill the body, but not the soul. And that's everything in this world. Even the devil is only capable of killing your body. A pandemic can only kill your body. Violence can only kill your body. Who alone has the authority to destroy your soul? And the answer to that is God in the judgment. God alone is worthy of our fear. But, but, the text then tells us not to fear God. It's a great turn. Fear God alone. So the fear of God is liberating it frees us from fearing all other things. And then once we fear God alone, what does Jesus tell us? He gives us this picture of sparrows. They're, they're sold. Two sparrows are sold for an asarion, which is a Roman coin worth one sixteenth of a day's pay. A half an hour's work. They're cheap. They're not worth much of anything. In fact, I asked a Bible class this once in person, and nobody wanted to buy them. I said, you know, if I offered you two sparrows, even for a penny, who would buy them? People didn't want them. They're worthless. But you? God cares for them. So that's the point. They're worthless, but God cares for them. But you, God knows how many hairs are on your head. He cares for you that much. He knows you that intimately, that dearly. Fear not, therefore, you are of much, you are of more value than many sparrows. And what is your value? Your value is infinite. Because your value is based on what Jesus used to buy you. And what did Jesus use to buy you back from sin? His own blood. Divine blood. The blood of God himself poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. That's your value. Not whatever the world may say. Not whatever you might think of yourself. No amount of self-esteem or pride 
Your value is based in God and what God has said it is. Because God speaks that you have value, you have value. That's huge. And that's the point of the text. Fear no one but God. And then you don't even have to fear God because he has given his life for you. So there it is. God will reveal all things in the judgment. We have the mission of sharing the good news. Go in peace and share it. Oh,